Welcome to Artworks, the weekly podcast from the National Endowment for the Arts. I'm Josephine Reed. This week we're doing something a little different. We're looking at the creative power of food. More specifically, the way food can help us better appreciate our history and deepen our understanding of historical figures. That's the goal of author Ray Amy, who's written some seven books looking at specific eras in America by exploring its food. With her last two books, she began writing what could be called culinary biographies. The first was Abraham Lincoln in the Kitchen, which was so successful, she followed that with Stirring the Pot with Benjamin Franklin, which is set to be published in the fall. Ray Amy's culinary detective work not only opens doors into the worlds of these men, she also converts the food they enjoyed into modern recipes so that it's possible for cooks at home like you or me to recreate these authentic dishes. Think of it as delicious experiential learning from someone who knows her history and her food. It's worth noting Ray Amy has won blue ribbons at both the Iowa and Minnesota state fairs for her cooking. And so no one misses out. Throughout the podcast, we'll hear recipes from Ray Amy's Lincoln and Franklin books. Food and history is a wonderful marriage, but it is an unusual one. I was curious how Ray Amy began doing it. It was, it was really happenstance. I was working in public relations and interpreting at a historic antebellum house in Tuscaloosa, Alabama, and happened along the household notebook of the woman who had lived at the house. And I've cooked since I was 10, so I know how important food is. So I started tinkering with these recipes that I really didn't understand, and it led me into this entire world of 18th century foods and, and 19th century foods. And it was just one delicious taste after another, and then seeing how they integrated with being able to tell the story of the people's lives. Well, in the cases of Lincoln and Franklin, do you think you got to know them better by exploring the ways they ate? Absolutely, uh, without question. Both men knew the storytelling power of food. Franklin, in particular, used food as, as a hint, as an entree into his autobiography 14 times in the first two chapters. Lincoln was not quite as expressive as far as food goes, but at a critical moment in the uh, Lincoln-Douglas debates, he brought up this gingerbread anecdote and, in fact, described how his mother made them. But then as I began to look at the food that they ate, you get insights into their lives, into what the possibilities are. And uh, without a doubt, I felt that I was transported more immediately into their world, you know, to be able to, in in effect, sit at their table with them. Well, Franklin was born in 1706 and Lincoln in 1809. How much had food choices, varieties, habits, cooking techniques changed in those hundred years? That's a very interesting question and an interesting perspective because you have, in in some respects, it's not as linear as one would think because you have Franklin living in Boston, Philadelphia, and then in England and France, so he's immediately in an urban context. Whereas 100 years later, Abraham Lincoln is with his family pioneering in Kentucky and Indiana. So his childhood experience with his mother cooking on an open hearth is really close to Franklin's mother's experience cooking on an open hearth in Boston. This might be an unfair question, but in Boston, urban centers, in other words, during Lincoln's time, had cooking techniques or habits shifted by then? 
Yes, yes. There's there's very much a dichotomy between the pioneering experience on what was the fringes of the of the nation for Lincoln and the sophistication of the East Coast. And what's fascinating to see is how as transportation improves, those sophisticated techniques, those unusual to the Midwest ingredients make their way to the Midwest. For example, in 1732, Lincoln is eating oysters that come from New York or Baltimore. They come around the Atlantic coast and up the Mississippi and end up in Vandalia, Illinois, of all places. (laughs) Oyster stew. In the 19th century, oysters were a popular, inexpensive, and well-traveled seafood. Barrels of live oysters traveled south and west from New York and Baltimore harbors. Mace, the ground husk of a nutmeg, was a common seasoning at the time. Here it adds both a mellow and slightly sharp, subtle flavor to the light stew. To stew oysters. One pint shucked oysters with liquid. One quarter teaspoon ground mace. Peel from one lemon. Four white peppercorns. One cup light cream. Two tablespoons flour. Two tablespoons butter at room temperature. Snippets. Small triangles of homemade bread toasted and buttered to serve. Drain the oysters, reserving their liquor. Wash to remove any grit and filter the oyster liquor to remove grit as well. Place the oysters, liquor, mace, lemon peel, and peppercorns in a small saucepan. Stir in the cream and simmer very gently over low heat until the edges of the oysters curl up, indicating that they are cooked about five minutes. Mix the flour and butter with a fork into a smooth paste. Remove the oysters from the cooking liquid and keep warm. Drop small bits of the flour mixture into the liquid, then stir until smooth and thickened. Return the oysters to the liquid to warm through. Serve with snippets. Stirring the pot with Ben Franklin is your most current book, so let's focus on him for a moment. I'm curious how meals were structured when he was growing up. Was breakfast a hearty meal for the Franklins, given how much physical work had to be done? Franklin was really kind of a minimalist eater. He had this breakfast dish that he ate pretty much most of his life, as far as I was able to tell. And I think it stemmed from his childhood experience of you know, getting up and getting to work pretty quickly in the candle manufacturing part of their home. So he had this lovely name of hot water gruel, but it really is kind of the hot cereal that any of us would eat. But he fortified it with bread cubes that were tossed in butter and some pepper to spice it up. And how would they make cereal? Would it be over the hearth? Yes, yeah, in a, in a big kettle hanging over the open hearth, exactly. And the main meal was in the middle of the day, correct? Typically, in most of the households, the main meal in colonial-era New England and for much of the colonies was the dinner, but it was served at midday. Sometime between it appears, you know, 2 or 3 o'clock. And then you would have supper, you know, later than that. But my thesis in the book is that Franklin's family maybe didn't eat dinner that early because they were busy making candles. And that once you start dipping the candles and and pulling out the, the wicks from the liquid tallow, you really can't stop because the tallow would harden up. So the picture I paint is that they had their dinner later. Well, one picture you paint is of ox cheek stew. 
as a, a meal that could be slowly prepared and didn't have to be looked after. Could you explain that recipe to us? Sure, exactly. The tallow, of course, is beef fat. So Franklin's father would be bringing home the the tallow. And ox cheeks are literally the cheeks of the ox. And it's a cut that's kind of hard to find. But it's, it's chewy. It's strongly flavored. It's really a wonderful cut of beef, but it has to cook low and slow for a really long time. So it would have been a simple matter for Franklin's mother, Abaya, to cook the vegetables for the stew in the large pot. And as the original recipes say, you know, you cook them until all the good is cooked out of them. And while those are cooking, you put the beef in and you put the water in and just let it simmer all day. In Franklin's time, were there commercially prepared foods that people, I mean regular people, not rich people, but regular people could buy, or was everything pretty much homemade? There were bakeries, of course, and there were taverns where one could go and get a meal. But, yeah, it's pretty much home prepared. Now, when you say bakeries, of course, why of course? When you read about the um, society and when you read about the stores that people frequented, bakeries and taverns are frequently listed in the descriptions of town centers. My sense of it is that, you know, if you're baking a typical bread, it's much easier to bake that in a commercial oven because the ovens in colonial kitchens were smaller beehive ovens built into the side of the hearth. So while you could put some bread goods in there, it really made sense to have someone do that commercially for you in an urban center. And what about if you were going to fry fish, for example, or eggs? What would you do? They had frying pans um, on legs. And you'd stick it over the hearth? Yes. Mm -hmm. That's the wonderful thing about open hearths. They are incredibly versatile depending on how you arrange your coals or your wood. You know, you can get a small bunch of coals that would be hot enough and just put them immediately under that one frying pan to bring that up to a quick temperature and then fry in it. How did you find out about all this? A lot of reading (laughs) and some experimenting. You've taken recipes from that time and you've walked this fine line of trying to make them accessible to those of us today who would like to try them out, but at the same time remain true to the original recipe. How did you maneuver that? That's a really good question. And it's, again, it's a lot of practice and, and thinking things through carefully. How true can you be to the, to the integrity of the original ingredient? How would they have cooked it? Where are the opportunities to use the kinds of techniques we use now and make them applicable to what they did back then. When you first tried these recipes out, did you try to cook them in your fireplace or in an open fire pit, or did you stick to the stove? I stick to the stove, (laughs) with a few exceptions. But, you know, the goal is to recreate these dishes in modern kitchens using modern equipment. You know, we don't need to be tinkering around in our fireplaces. I mean, some people enjoy doing that. I'd much rather use my pots and pans. But do you try to use, for example, cast iron or or copper or stainless steel? No, actually, for some things I do use my cast iron, but basically it's sort of the basic, you know, stainless steel pots and pans that I use every day. Because the goal is to make this easy, because the flavors are what's important, the flavors and the textures. But you do say, feel free to use the food processor, but it's really kind of better if you don't. 
Yeah, yeah. I do kind of get, now that you mentioned it, kind of persnickety about cutting things <laughs> <laughs> and mixing things. I do think processors can overprocess. I think there's, um, you know, like I'd never use a processor to knead dough. You need, I need to do that by hand. You get good results. I think you get them almost as efficiently. And I think that is part of the sense of getting into the experience. I was really struck by how innovative some of their cooking processes were. For example, using wood ash as a leavening agent. Wood, yeah, wood ash is the beginning point of chemical leavening. By the time we have the first American totally written cookbook in 1794, it's called potash. Then as you get into the, the 19th century, it becomes celeritus, and then it becomes baking soda. So it's this continuum. I still can't figure out who figured out you could make a leavening agent from the ash of wood. I have no idea. I really would like to be there at that creative moment. I would, too. The one thing that really has changed is back then nothing was wasted, apparently. which Very is little. Now, of course, the waste, it's actually criminal, the, the amount of food that gets wasted. Yes, yeah, yeah, exactly. And, and you find back then they had pigs and chickens that they could feed that waste to. So, you know, the waste is handled in a different way. Everything's used. Yeah. I mean, clearly, if you're using the ash of wood to make yeast, <laughs> everything is used. It was very interesting how versatile these recipes can be given such simple ingredients. And I'm thinking, for example, of the recipe where it's the same ingredients, the same proportions, and depending on the preparation, you make noodles or you make bread. Oh, yes. That's one of my favorite recipes in this whole collection. And I, you know, I make these noodles all the time now. That's part of the joy of doing this work is finding recipes that have, you know, slipped between the cracks. And you just go, oh, my gosh, this is fabulous. So this was during the French and Indian War, the early days of it, when Franklin commanded a company of troops that were out in the frontier at the time, which is really eastern Pennsylvania, which is near Bethlehem, and it's, you know, at the time it was way out there. But he was commanding these troops, and at the same time he's putting to press that year's Poor Richard's Almanac, he had very few recipes that he put in Poor Richard's. But in this one he put in foods that would feed a great number of people at very little expense. And I think in the back of his mind is he's thinking of soldiers. Soldiers, Noodles, and Bread, Feasting on Flour and Water. Franklin's original recipe used noodles made from a pound of flour, then cooked in a gallon of water flavored with suet to feed six people for a whole day. I've cut the recipe down to family size. One quarter teaspoon salt, about one-third cup water, one cup all-purpose flour. Dissolve the salt in the water and then mix with the flour. Knead until you have smooth dough, adding a bit more water or flour if necessary. Divide the dough into thirds and roll each piece on a lightly floured surface until it is about the size of a piece of paper. Cut into thin strips. As Franklin wrote, the more thin and small they are, the more they will swell. They seem to dry just enough as you are cutting them to use immediately. For later use, seal in an airtight container 
refrigerate and use within a day. It makes about three cups uncooked noodles. Here's the instructions for making bread using the same ingredients. One cup all-purpose flour, one quarter teaspoon salt, one third cup water. Put the flour and salt in a bowl and form a well in the center. Gradually add the water, mixing with your fingers. Knead to make a smooth dough. You may need to add a bit more water or flour. You can form this dough immediately into six or eight flat cakes. Bake these on lightly greased or parchment paper lined sheets in a 425 degree Fahrenheit oven for about five minutes. How interested was Benjamin Franklin in food? Franklin was passionate about a great many things and food was one of them. He used it as a, as a narrative device in his autobiography. He talked about his vegetarian experiences. He talked about the um, biscuit he wanted to find from Boston when he ran away to Philadelphia, couldn't find it and ended up having to buy three puffy rolls of bread. As he was in um, Europe, in England, he traveled to Ireland. He observed the conditions of the Irish and understood immediately the effect of food on, on their life choices. He also sent back plants to John Bartram, who was America's premier botanist. He threw wonderful parties, and the, the menus from them are just luscious. He had favorite foods, he, and most of them were healthy foods. He loved peas. He loved asparagus. Tell me about his vegetarianism. When was he a vegetarian, and why? He um, was working for his brother as an apprentice to learn the printing business. He had picked up some books. He was a voracious reader. He picked up some books on vegetarianism and kind of made a moral choice that um, he really didn't want to eat animals. So the brother wasn't married at that point, and so they had a cook who would prepare the meals for his brother James, Benjamin, and the other apprentices. And so James said to Ben, well, you know, it's just asking too much for the cook to make special meals for you. How about if I give you half the money I would pay her for your meals, and you can take care of yourself. Well, Ben immediately saw this as a win-win-win. He not only could get the food he wanted, but he only spent half the money that James gave him, so he had money to buy books. He stayed a vegetarian for a few years. He kind of skipped in and out of it throughout his life. Franklin lived abroad for years, as we mentioned. I mean, 15 years in England, nine years in France. Were there local foods, local American foods, that Franklin missed that he mentioned in his letters? It, absolutely. And there were things that his wife, Deborah, sent him when he lived in England. Primary among them were apples. And among the apples, it was the Newtown Pippin, which is his absolute favorite apple. He loved that apple so much that he arranged for um, cuttings and, and rooted grafts to be sent both to England and to France so that his friends could grow these trees because he loved this apple so much. It's a really good keeper. It's beginning to come back into fashion in some heritage orchards now. And I was able to um, to find some. And yeah, it's a great apple. <laughs> Deborah also sent him um, smoked meats, um, ham and venison. She sent cranberries, which were a great surprise to the English house where Franklin roomed for those 15 years. They, they had never seen them, and the, the uh, staff didn't quite know what to do with this really tart fruit. And what about corn? 
corn of all kinds, not American sweet corn the way we know now, but corn flour of various varieties was particularly important to Franklin too. And he saw corn as an important American story. It was, you know, the key grain of the new world. And so there were four or five different kinds of corn meals that Deborah sent to him. Some of them just regular cornmeal like we know. Some of them made from parched cornmeal, which was called no cake. And he really thrived on having this essential American grain. You say in your book that he saw food as key to the developing culture of the United States. Exactly. And it was part of the American story, you know, to recognize the power of American agriculture and American bounty, because Franklin recognized that there's this enormous land here that can be settled. Where England is full and France is full, there's no place for the people to go. In America, without knowing how far west it went, he knew that it was a vast land that could be settled and people could achieve their dreams. And so Lincoln would be a beneficiary of this, being a pioneer in Kentucky and Indiana. Right, right. Well said. And like Franklin, Lincoln loved his apples. (laughs) Yes, he did. And he ate them from the top down, straight through the core. How much do you think our food tastes have changed? Or have they? Very much. Yeah, I think they I think they have, especially for cooked composed dishes, things like stews and that sort of thing. Um, you know, you see I have uh, you know, a chicken recipe in the Franklin book that has this this mixture that you stuff under the skin and it's got cloves and mace and nutmeg and lemon zest and bacon and butter to hold the whole thing together. We don't often think of cloves and mace and nutmeg in chicken. You find things seasonings like cardamom used and an awful lot of anise seed and there's very little chocolate chocolate was not common except as a beverage and it was unsweetened Uh, there's very little vanilla only in the wealthiest homes you see an awful lot of molasses (laughs) just tons and tons of it Uh, and in Lincoln's era you see molasses and sorghum so you know those are kind of the baseline differences However, with Lincoln, you do see barbecue. Yes, you do. But it is not a tomatoey barbecue like we have now. And this is one, another one of those recipes that I make all the time. You know, you just coat your meat with molasses and let it sit around, you know, for a couple of hours. And then you kind of wipe the molasses off and cook it over a slow fire. And it's amazing. Just molasses. Just molasses. Yes, ma'am. Wow. Mary Todd's almond courting cake looked very good to me. It's, it's another fabulous cake. And it was one that I looked at long and hard as I was doing the research on the Lincoln book. And that's, that's one where the story of leavening comes in. Because part of it is not only telling the story of their lives and telling the story of the societal forces, but also, you know, looking exactly how close can we get to the food. I began looking at recipes from the 1840s and found one that I think fits the story. And it's essentially an angel food cake. It's leavened with egg whites and finely chopped with a knife, almonds. The original recipe said it takes two days to make this cake. But I can chop a little faster, although I do sometimes cheat and use the food processor on the almonds. French almond cake. Four large eggs separated. Half a cup granulated sugar, pulverized. Three-quarter teaspoon pure almond extract. 
one quarter teaspoon pure lemon extract, three ounces blanched slivered almonds finely crushed or chopped into one sixteenth inch pieces, one quarter cup unbleached all-purpose flour sifted three times. Preheat oven to 350 degrees Fahrenheit. In a deep, large bowl, beat egg whites until they stand in stiff peaks, then set aside. In a second large bowl, using an electric mixer, beat egg yolks until they are thick and have turned into a light yellow color. This could take as long as five minutes. With the mixer running, begin adding the sugar, about a tablespoon at a time. Continue beating until the sugar is fully incorporated and the batter is thick. Stir in the almond and lemon extracts, and then the almonds. Stir in the flour. With a flexible rubber spatula, fold about one-third of the beaten egg whites into the egg yolk batter to lighten it up. Then gently fold this lightened batter into the remaining egg whites. Pour the batter into an ungreased tube pan. Bake until the cake is firm and lightly browned on top, about 25 to 30 minutes. Invert the pan on cooling rack. Cool completely before removing the cake from the pan. I wonder if there's a prepared food that we're familiar with, but it would have been made very differently in Lincoln's time, tasted very differently. Yeah, it's the gingerbread man that he alludes to in the uh, Lincoln-Douglas debate where he kind of gives us a recipe, and I was able to find one that fit his description, is so completely different from the gingerbread that we're used to. It's um, different texture. It's more of a crispy, biscuity kind of thing. The only flavoring in it is sorghum and ginger, none of the other spices that we associate with gingerbread cookies. And it's really not super sweet. But this was the essential treat of his childhood. This something that is not sweet, but richly flavored, has a bit of a sweetness to it, but not overly so. And when you look at what that meant to him, and you compare it to what we're used to eating, that, and again, is one of those points where the flavors are dramatically different. Once in a while, my mother used to get some sorghum and ginger and make some gingerbread. It wasn't often, and it was our biggest treat. One day, I smelled the gingerbread, and came into the house to get my share while it was hot. My mother had baked me three gingerbread men. I took them under a hickory tree to eat them. There was a family that lived near us that was a little poorer than we were, and their boy came along as I sat down. Abe, he said, give me a man? I gave him one. He crammed it in his mouth in two bites and looked at me while I was biting the legs from my first one. Abe, he said, give me the other one. I wanted it myself, but I gave it to him, and as it followed the first, I said to him, You seem to like gingerbread. Abe, he said, I don't suppose there's anybody on this earth likes gingerbread better than I do. He drew a long breath before he added, And I don't suppose there's anybody on this earth gets less than I do food really does speak volumes about a culture in a particular time and in a particular place. And the creativity that people use to do something as essential as feeding themselves. That's very true. And and you see it both with Lincoln and and with Franklin. You see them making the best of 
of the ingredients that drop into your lap from the tree in your backyard, making a, making a rich marmalade. The creativity to make ice cream. Mary Lincoln made, made strawberry ice cream. You, you look in the grocery journal from their years in Springfield, and the strawberry ice cream of the period is half strawberry and half cream. So you get this kind of cross between a gelato and an ice cream, and it's really, really good. Well, Ray, both books are fascinating. Thank you so much, and thank you for giving me your time. I really, really appreciate it. Thank you so much, Joe. I really enjoyed it, and I hope you enjoy the food as much as I do. Yeah, I'm sure I will. Thank you. That was Ray Amy. She's the author of Lincoln in the Kitchen and the forthcoming Stirring the Pot with Benjamin Franklin, both published by Smithsonian Books. My thanks to Victoria Hutter, who read the recipes, and Cliff Murphy, who read Lincoln's Gingerbread Story. You've been listening to Artworks, produced at the National Endowment for the Arts. I'm Josephine Reed. Thanks for listening.